0: We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Today's interview with Jess Stainbrook is brought to you by Mike Carlin's novel, Winning Streak. Winning Streak is the story of how three lives intersect and the journey each takes to learn critical lessons in order to heal from the pain of loss in their lives. Readers will be taken on an emotional journey full of laughter and tears while enjoying this novel which is reminiscent of Nicholas Sparks and Mitch Albom. You can purchase Winning Streak in ebook and paperback format wherever books are sold online. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Unquirking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to share with you my recent conversation with Jess Stainbrook, the Executive Director of the Invisible Disabilities Association, I know you're going to love that conversation, but before we get to it, there's a few thoughts that I wanted to share. You might recall that I have a twin brother named Jim, or Brother Jimmy, as he's known in certain circles. And no, that's not a religious thing. I can tell you right now, he is not a brother in that sense of the word. Uh, But pre-COVID, I was very involved in Connecticut's local comedy scene, and Jim was always there to watch me perform and he did a great job at helping fill some seats because he has a pretty good network of friends. And they would always come and watch me and some of my other friends, my fellow comedians, perform. And he became such a fixture that uh, the other comics actually nicknamed him Brother Jimmy. And over time, I actually got the feeling <laughs> that uh, they were more excited to see him than me. And uh, you know what? There's probably a little bit of truth to that. But uh, I digress. Uh, in, in July of 2018, uh, just a couple summers ago, I had two prime tickets to see uh, U2's Experience and in Innocence show at Madison Square Garden. And Jim, who had joined me uh, the previous summer um, to uh, to the tour that was commemorating the 30th anniversary of the Joshua Tree, uh, he was supposed to join me. And in, in case you didn't know or in case you couldn't figure out, uh, I'm like one of the world's biggest U2 fans. And uh, every time they come around, I always go see them. Anyway, that, uh, that summer night in, um, in June of 2018, he did not make it to the show. Instead, earlier that day, uh, I checked him into a local hospital uh, in Connecticut where uh, he was on the brink of a breakdown. Um, the, the guy wasn't sleeping. He was physically run down. Uh, he looked terrible. I mean, worse than usual. And uh, his, uh, his emotions were, were just all over the place. They were running wild. And he needed help. And he sought that help at a place called Silver Hill. And I waited with him throughout the intake process. I drove him there. I drove with him there. And uh, he had to have a physical exam. He had to do some kind of an interview. He had to sign a bunch of papers, et cetera. I mean, there was there was a lot of stuff that he had to do. Um, maybe I was there for 90 minutes. I, I'm not sure how long it was. But um, I tried to distract myself over that time period with work and I was really just dreading the moment that I'd have to say goodbye to him because I, I didn't know how long he was going to be in there for. I don't think he did either. I just I, I need to rewind a bit. Um, he was out of touch with our family for a very long period of time. And uh, that summer, I'd actually seen him more than I had in, I don't know, 10, 15 years. And I won't go into the reasons why he was sort of separated from us that's really his story to tell and he'll actually do a good job telling that in a book he's got a book coming out um uh hopefully this winter uh how's that for a teaser um but but the point is the thought of losing him again even just for a week was was tough and finally it was time to say goodbye and um you know they were going to bus him over to his living quarters from where the check-in is it was a little little ways away and I couldn't come back to see him for 48 hours. He, he wasn't allowed to have any visitors for, um, for a little bit of time. And, uh, but once I could go visit, I actually did go, I went and visited him, visited him every day. And if you've never been to a mental hospital, <laughs> I hope you haven't. Um, and, and I don't really mean that term pejoratively. I just have no, no better way of describing what it was. Um, you know, you really have no idea what it's like, but I can tell you this. There's not a lot of smiling, or, or at least there's not a lot of smiling for happiness. Um, you know, I've been in my fair share of hospitals, visiting friends, visiting family as they recover from surgery or as they recover from you know various illnesses, and many of them actually do manage to smile when they see you. You know, they're happy to see you. Um, I'd like to think that I bring a little bit of uh, light into someone's day in the hospital, but but not the residents of this place. You know, Jim and his fellow patients. They were there for a number of reasons, you know, stress, stress and anxiety for Jim. But, you know, people were also there for things like sex addiction, addiction, uh, alcohol addiction, opo- opioid addiction. I'm having a hard time speaking today. Uh, bipolar disorder was big. Um, happiness had left these people um, and it may not be coming back anytime soon. But like I said, I visited him every day, every chance I could. And as much as I wanted to let him know that he wasn't alone and that we were all pulling for him, I also went for me. Selfishly, it made me feel better to see him, even though he was in a place that was, you know, kind of wrought with sadness. It made me feel better to see him. And maybe it was my own way of dealing with guilt for not forcing myself back into his life when he was being pulled away from his family. Um, but there's another hypothesis I have too, which is, you know, I may have been driven to visit him so much as a deterrent. You now, he and I share some very similar personality characteristics, and I was aware that what drove him to that point could also get me. So in one way, uh, he, he kind of took one for the team. Um, he kind of took one for the team. Anyway, after my visits, I, you know, wonder, you know, how did it get that bad? You know, how could none of us see it? Um, You know, if you asked me, you know, years ago, uh, who in our family would wind up in in a mental hospital, you know, I'd I'd say it would be me because, you know, not because I'm depressed or anything, um, but because, you know, people used to say I was crazy and I have a kind of a wacky sense of humor and I... I make observations that, you know, many people wouldn't think to make. My father calls that, you know, Michael being Michael. But I wondered, you know, how did it get this bad? I never, I never thought in a million years, in a million years, that it would be Jim. Everything was always in order for him. You know, career, big career, big job, law firm. He was always so serious, always had it together. Um, but he didn't. And it got so bad And none of us saw it because what Jim has and what countless people have are invisible disabilities. And that brings me to today's guest. There's no doubt that the combination of COVID and what's going on in cities throughout the country has created more than the usual amount of stress in most of us. And when you add to that politics, and no matter what side of the aisle you're on, you have a recipe for overwhelming stress. And with us today to discuss invisible disabilities and a way to help you and yours deal with stress is the executive director of the Invisible Disabilities Association, Jess Stainbrook. So without further commercial interruption, here's my interview with Jess. See, you have an impressive uh, mixing board over there to your left, so. Yeah,
1: the old style, man. The analog versions that I still like.
0: I have to say, I I went with, um, hold on here. My desk is a bit of a mess. But I went with this uh, Knight Rider-looking version. Um, Oh,
1: Interesting.
0: It uh it still has knobs though. I mean, it, it still has sliders. It Still right? has the faders, man. You have to have the faders, so.
1: Yeah, you got to have something to grab onto, you know.
0: I feel like um, you know that scene in at the end of the first Star Wars or the first Star Wars <laughs> movie, the fourth uh, whatever. Uh where where they, you know, they're going to blow up uh, you know, they're going to try <laughs> and blow something up and I always pretend these faders are like <laughs> this little uh I wish I. You know didn't. it's
1: really, you know it's really funny, and I don't know if you're familiar with the TV world, but um, there was this old switcher, the Grass Valley 1600, and. Um, you see it in all of these kind of futuristic right. where they're like pushing. It's exactly as like you said, they're going to blow something up and they're like, dude, that's just a fade to black. You <laughs> yeah, know? That's right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, you know, it's interesting from a work standpoint, most people know me for my work in media broadcast television and movies and things like that. Um, let's see. I grew up uh, on the East coast um, landed, it moved every two years growing up. Was one of those kids, and uh, landed in Philadelphia, outside of Philadelphia for high school. Okay, which was really awesome. Um, it's, it's pretty really, awesome,
0: and it's pretty awesome in Philadelphia right now. I want to say uh, it would be
1: hard to go get a cheesesteak peacefully. <laughs> I would that, think so. that, that's what I think might be difficult. Why did you move around so much? Uh, my dad was actually a, a professional Boy Scout. And it was a lot like the Army where they would just move you around. But it also allowed me to be very active in the Boy Scouts, which was a huge component to learning a lot of cool outdoor stuff growing up. My mom was an art teacher, which kind of gave the creative side. Um, as a matter of fact, it was really funny because she wouldn't allow us to have coloring books. There was no, we, we weren't allowed to have anything with lines in it. In other words, she wa- you could have all the paper, the paint, crayons. We actually had one of those kick wheels for pottery and a kiln at our house. I mean, you could do anything at our house, but no coloring books or no none of the paint-by-number things. There was nothing to guide your creativity. You just had to be creative. And so I really dropped into kind of photography, drawing, um, and, and then got into kind of movie-making, and it just kind of took over. I mean, I was one of those kids that – uh, while I was really active in sports, um, I always had a camera for some reason. Just really enjoyed that part, and it led to more storytelling. You know what I
0: mean? What What was it about movie making that you were you were drawn to? You know what? What was it about photography and and capturing stories visually that that really spoke to you?
1: Yeah, that's that's a really good question, Michael. I, you know, I, I grew up in a family where um, every summer we spent in Chautauqua, New York. And Chautauqua, New York is an, an art community. Um, there's an institute there and they have like weekly programs for things that are kind of rolling through there. But um, all of my family would would show up there. And that included, my grandfather had 10 brothers and sisters. My grandmother had five sisters. My other side, I mean, so everybody, it's, it's like this whole family lived in one or two houses. And as I had all these old great aunts and uncles, um, I would always explore the house and I found uh, a drawer in the dining room filled with old black and white pictures. And at least once a year, I would pull those out and force all of the old people to sit around a table. And I would just start passing them around and I would listen to the stories. And I would then I start taping the stories like an old cassette tape kind of a thing and putting things together because it was almost like I became the historian. I was just paying attention because they were so powerful. And the ironic part about those, I'll call them oral histories, is it's how I got to build TV stations and other big um, media groups in the future, um, having that experience of interviewing really old people when stories would come out. One of the big uh, Emmy award-winning series I did was called legends and oddities. And it literally was a historic thing based on here in Colorado, um, uh, on stories from all the old folks when I would hear these wacky things like I would oral histories like, hey, what was the biggest winner you had? Well what was your first grade teacher like? Like I, how about the flood of 65? You know, I'd talk them through these things. But then there'd be this thing like, yeah, remember the 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 gold chest that they found up at Devil's Head? You'd be like, what? Remember those twin 50 caliper uh, guns they pulled off of that plane crash in, in Pikes National Forest? And I'd be like, where's that coming from? Well, if I heard it from two or more people, I would go research this stuff. And it turned into a series that was really powerful. I mean, the show, The Search for the B-17 was a B-17 crashed in the Pike National Forest in 1944. And somebody had gone in there and stolen the twin 50 caliber guns off of it so somebody knew where it was well i put together a crew to go find it we documented the whole thing it was like a national geographic kind of a deal you know it snowed that day it's in the middle of nowhere i mean it was really crazy stories the monster of plum creek there was a bigfoot sighting in 1954 i I, I mean see you're (laughs) laughing too i love what i would do I would just go like, seriously, is this stuff for real? And and sure enough, we would pursue it. Uh, there was a UFO sighting in 63 in Castle Rock. And it turned out to be a kid doing a science experiment with like uh, a dry cleaner bag and, and, and a kerosene thing. But the mayor saw it. The sheriff saw it. Like everybody saw it and yeah. thought it was a UFO. And for days, it was this this thing that happened and all these people coming in in this panic. Well, then the mom was like, Hey, you got to admit this, man. This is crazy. <laughs> well, there's still people that are bent out of shape about it, you know, <laughs> because so many people were embarrassed. It was so funny. Oh
0: Gosh, that reminds me of like an episode of the Brady Bunch. I want to say there was a storyline <laughs> yeah. like that, but so, I mean, this journey starts with like an in, in innate curiosity and I just have to, to, to share. I had a, I don't want to say similar experience, but I remember like, you know, in my house we had moved from, uh, from Florida to Connecticut, which is where I still live. But you know, I was maybe eight or nine years old and I was going through the attic. Cause there was a bunch of unopened boxes still in the attic. And I'm like, well, yeah. it's a summer day. It was hot as heck up there, but I had nothing else to do. So there was no internet back then, you know, and I played as much wiffle ball as I could possibly play that day. So I there went upstairs is. and I started exploring, like what's in these boxes. And I came across a bunch of old, I guess they were like super eight, you know, videotapes. And I, I just kind of just like parked that in my mind. And then a few months later, my uncle came down from New Hampshire to visit. And he's like, Don, it's my father's name is Don. He says, Don, do you know where those tapes are? And he's like, I have no idea where they are. They got lost in the move. And I'm like, I know where the tapes are. I found them. <laughs> So I brought them down, and now we have this this whole like history of all these old movies that we actually wound up converting to VHS. And I guess I'll have to convert to some digital form now. But um, So it starts with that innate curiosity. When did you think to yourself, you know, I can make a living doing this, or I want to make a living doing this?
1: Oh, that's an interesting component to this. Um, as I was saying, I, I've always been that creative kid. I mean, creativity drove me. But I really didn't think I was going to be able to get it into college. And if it weren't for soccer, I wouldn't have. I mean, I went to play on a soccer scholarship, which was awesome, and played for two years. And then uh, pulled back to play some uh, on some other teams. I played on a Greek team for a while and some other things like that. But then I went back to Temple University uh, in Philly. And it was really that thing of, of moving into it full time to say, okay, this is what I want to do. Communications major, right? Um, well, at least at Temple, you couldn't get near any of this stuff. I mean, it was really bizarre, like in, until you were an upperclassman or you had more experience. And so it was like this, uh, you know, if then kind of a thing. And, and it really never seemed to work out. And I wasn't getting enough hands on like I had in high school and growing up on cameras and things like that. And so I actually signed up uh, for the Navy. I was signed up for aviation officer candidate school and went through all the tests and was ready to go to Pensacola. And, and the first semester of my senior year, I got an internship and the internship was with the phone company. And everybody was laughing in the internship class. Cause you know, Joey was going to the, the net, the local network station. Everyone was going to the networks. Everybody had these cool things and Jess was stuck at the phone company. Well, the first day, I walked into this internship and they sit me down at a board at a board like this, right? The big board only, it was like 48 channels. And the guy said, uh, we have the voice of the NFL, Jeff K coming in. Um, and you're going to be doing the recording here in a couple of hours. <laughs> and I was like, "What? Well, I never what, 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 and, and, from that day forward, Michael, those guys took me under their wing and when they did something, they taught me, showed me hands on it was everything was hands-on. it was so incredible. and I, went, I would go back to the senior seminar you know classes and you know what'd you guys do this week? Well, we made coffee and copies, you know and what'd you do? Well, let's see. I shot with Tug McGraw after he won the World Series. Uh, what else did I do today? I mean, seriously, it was that kind of experience. And and you know, Jeff Kay was actually that's a funny story in itself. Jeff Kay comes in, you know. I mean, it's like Harry Callis, too, the voice of the Phil. Harry Callis here in Philadelphia Phillies. Little guy, cardigan sweater. They all drink coffee and smoke like crazy. It 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 cracks you up. You know, Jeff Kay, in between takes, would be like doing the 70, you know, the ball was on the five yard line. And you're like, what? <laughs> That's the voice, man. Oh my goodness. So yeah, a lot of fun, but that really sparked it. And what happened because the phone companies back then, divestiture the happened. My internship ended at December 13th and they said, would you like a full-time job? And I'm like, heck yeah. And they said, we can't hire you in the phone company because tomorrow it's going to be different all the baby bills, bells are splitting up and they're going to conglomerate into this other thing and divestiture. And so what happened was, um, they said, but we will use you. If you create your own company, we'll use you as a freelancer. And that's what, and that's, and I started my first company and it literally yanked me out of, of college. Um, and I was, before I knew it, I was producing all their stuff because now they're Bell Atlantic. They're like six, baby bells that need to do stuff um, and then I made some connections with PBS I did an Olympic special that year um, the the torch run across the US I actually was the one that kind of did that. And uh, that kind of launched my career as far as ESPN started using me, MTV, um, and it just took off. And so I went to all my college buddies and said, hey, who else wants to make a lot of money and have some fun? <laughs> and so we just kind of ran with it together. It was, it was crazy.
0: So was that was that 84, that the, the Olympics? It was. It
1: was 1984. So that yeah. was uh,
0: Dan and Dave, if I remember correctly. Do you remember the yes. whole Dan and yeah. Dave, which it turned out to not, it'd be a big thing that wasn't really a big thing? Right. Well, and
1: things have changed so much. I mean, you know, I teach university classes on digital media, visual storytelling. And I say, you know, the interesting part is you carry around with you a camera in your pocket. That's better than the first camera that I bought. That was 150 grand. And they're like, what? I said, yeah, my first decision really was, do I want a house or do I want a camera? And I chose a camera and it really changed kind of the direction of my life. And And how I got known in the industry and and really took off. It was it was a lot of fun.
0: So did you ever finish uh, at Temple, or you you left before graduation?
1: I left before graduation. However, um, I tried over the years to you know because my grandparents, you got to finish, you got to finish, you got to finish. And it it really came down to that thing of I don't know if you know this, but most schools, if you go ten years and you don't finish. They wipe the slate clean. It's over. Like as many credits as you got, it's zero. Well, so it was the summer of my 10th year. And I actually called Temple and I said, hey, trying to do this thing. Well, um, one of my buddies from a class answers the phone. And, and, and he's like, Jess, this is Bobby Goldberg, man. I was in your script writing class. I'm like, oh, hey, Bobby, what are you doing? You know? And he's like, well, what are you doing? And, and, and I said, well, you know, I work for this company called Pacific East. And he's like, oh, my gosh, the guys with the great internship? Because I, I want to give back. Like, that was a big thing. Like, hands on. I'm all about hands on, right? So I started an internship, and we were taking Temple uh, University students. Well, he goes, oh, my gosh, the guys with the great internship? I said, yeah. He goes, well, what do you do there? I heard they're amazing. And I said, well, I own it. He goes, come on. And, and, and he go and so then I say, Hey, I I need 15 credits to graduate. Like, what's the heck? He goes, let me call you back in five minutes. So sure enough, he calls back and he says, Hey, I talked him into here at the, at the radio television film department, you get life experience. So all you gotta do is send us 10 bucks per credit and you're going to graduate. Wow. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, can I send you 300 and get my master's as well? (laughs) And he's like, don't push it, you know? Don't push your luck. (laughs) And I did. Dude, I sent a check for 150 bucks, and I got the thing in the mail, and I was graduated. It was awesome. And my mom made a joke that, you know, hey, you graduated in four terms. Let's see, Carter, Reagan, Bush. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) it was this long, drawn-out 13-year adventure, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I I have three kids. They're triplets, and they just started college this fall. And oh my goodness! It's interesting. I didn't study, you know, communications at all. But as I was going through the the process of looking for schools with them, I, you know, I always wound up like investigating their communications programs because, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's kind of what I wound up doing. Even though I have absolutely no training in it whatsoever, you know, I was trained in psychology, and then um, I wound up in in digital advertising, and I wound up running focus groups but as part of my focus group business i would do you know i would produce videos and i would you know kind of write stories and bring them to life a bit and now of course i do this and i write books and all that but but i, I always wound up like visiting their communications programs and i and i think my son would would you know cuz he's like i don't know what i want to do and i'm like i think maybe you want cuz he loves being on stage he loves he's a natural storyteller i'm like maybe you want to do communication so he and i would would kind of sit and and, and go through these presentations and i'm like man i I always think back and i'm like i if i could do it all over again i might i might have gone that route you know as well but um
1: i would certainly focus a lot more i mean i was kind of a screw off i mean because of sports and you get i mean you know when you play soccer that's kind of your job at a school right and um yeah so inter- where so where'd you go to school
0: i went to uh, the university of connecticut undergrad and then i went to a uh, small jesuit college fairfield university for graduate work
1: Oh, cool, man. That's yeah. awesome. Well, it's interesting, you know, a lot of times th- you find that um, people think that athletes go into communication because it's easy, right? In other words, we used to have a joke. So the radio television fil- film department at Temple, they called it RTF, and it was rather than fail, right? <laughs> so that was always the joke. But um, what I've found out in the classes that I teach at university and different things like that is that Actually, athletes have a great propensity for creativity because they can think on the fly. They do it in their games. They know how to do it. And translating that immediately, I mean, usually my classes are more than half of athletes of some kind you know, that are at the college level. And so it is really interesting to watch that. But like I said, I think their brains are wired that way. I mean, it's the way I work too. I didn't realize it. Um, and you overcome the anything that doesn't work for you. I mean, I have dyslexia um, and it's hard for me to read and yet doesn't seem to be a problem. I can write, I can, you know, I mean, the ideas just pour out of my head and the question is, what do you do with that? You know what I mean? So yeah, it's kind of some wild stuff.
0: I think with athletes too, you know, they're, they're not afraid of hard work. Um, They're not, and they're not afraid of putting in the work either, you know, to get, to get to the point where you're playing, you know, at the collegiate level or at the professional level, um, you know, there's a long, it doesn't happen overnight. There is a long road to get there from physical conditioning to, to mental strength, to, you know, to, to, you know, just ability. And in the media and communications field, look, you're going to hear Noah billion times. And and unless you're you know willing to kind of grit through that like an athlete does, um, yeah, I, I could see where there's a natural connection just along along that level. Yeah, well. I
1: wrote a big article for LinkedIn on it because of of the connections and things like that. And um, yeah, it's interesting. It's funny you said you know you hear no a lot. Um, our joke is really no is just the beginning of the path to yes. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, just look, write, writing a book, I mean, you know, you you want to get a book published, you know, you're going to hear no. I mean, I, I can't even count. I could I could wallpaper this office, you know, <laughs> which is 500 square feet. I can wallpaper this office with rejection letters from agents, you know. It's just it's I was just at um, I was at one of the
1: booksellers association thing. I am an author with uh, HarperCollins and um but I do I've done children's books and children's dvds and things like that it was really funny because they have had this signing event and you'll appreciate this as an author and 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 what happened was i'm sitting next to these two powerhouse guys that i'm like oh my gosh your book is amazing and oh my gosh i love your book and they're like yeah why is our line like two or three people and yours is around the block i'm like dude my whole book takes up less than your copyright page. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> It was really funny.
0: Right. Right. Well, you know, I, I, I peeked at your IMDB a little bit. Um, Oh dear. And I noticed, I mean, there's a lot of faith-based, uh, programming on there and credits on there. Tell me a little bit about that and kind of the role that, that, you know, where where faith plays in your life and, and, you know, why that's so important to you.
1: Sure. Um, you know, I didn't really grow up in a Christian home, Michael. And, and so, uh, didn't really have any of that basis per se else in, in my life. And, uh, as you heard, I started a company, it took off. I was doing really well. As a matter of fact, I joke around that I made more in, in the first 15 days of my career, um, than my parents both made together that entire year. It was bizarre. Um, but in the midst of that, Uh, About six years into my company, we were uh, invited. My company was invited to shoot the first ever inside Communist Russia international athletic event. Um, Besides the Olympics, which we didn't go to in 1980, and a lot lot of my soccer buddies were let down for that. Um, Yeah, we're still angry. (laughs) Um, But so this was an ultra marathon, and so athlete teams from all over the world were going to come in and run a thousand miles across Siberia in 15 days. And the long story is actually pretty hilarious, but the short story is that in the midst of that, um, my company was chosen to cover this for the world, if you will, and they only let two of us come with cameras into communist Russia. Uh, They gave us a big list of things of what we weren't allowed to do, which was pretty much everything. And as a documentary filmmaker, I mean, I have eight Emmys in documentary work. This is what I do, and I don't not shoot things, you know what I mean? I shoot everything and I interview everybody. Well it was very difficult. But what we found is that there were four members of the Russian team that just didn't seem like athletes or at least that type of athletes. Ultra marathoners usually have a very specific thin look and, and it's the way they are. Um well it turns out these guys were KGB yeah. assigned to the race uh to watch us because they thought we were CIA. And uh about halfway in the race, uh, we were taken, I was taken by them to visit for a while because they needed to see whether I was a spy or not. And in, in the midst of those kinds of, uh, traumatic incidences, if you will, uh, I think sometimes you make decisions of what do I do, you know? And, and it's, 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 it's that foxhole moment of if there's a God and and he actually exists, and, and you reach out, might he choose to save you? You know what I mean? And, uh, I actually did and he did. And it so hugely impacted my life that it changed everything, um, of the way that I believed and thought and, and saw things. And, um, yeah, it was interesting that, you know, coming back to that uh, situation of announcing that in my company and half the people thought I was nuts and left and the other half, stuck with me and they too uh, became people of faith over time of understanding how this person went through such a huge change. I mean, there was a literally almost that Paul on Damascus, the road to Damascus experience. Um, And there's some other things that go backwards in that, that um, are, are really interesting as well. But yeah, the short version is that literally changed the focus, the way I looked at things And I started purposefully um, trying to be a positive role model in this industry and change the way I did things. Um, so instead of getting on a set as a director and screaming and yelling at people, I was building people up. I was supporting people. I was really helping people through things. And um, and that became something that I, I got known for. And the sporting things that you see all, you know, I've been to the Super Bowl the last 14 years, I guess. And while everybody else is talking about football, um, I talk to the players about what's most important in life. I mean, what, what's of value to you? And more often than not, they talk about, you know, faith, family, friends, and football. Football's last, man. And we get into these deep conversations. And uh, it's really led me to this place that's been incredible um, and the opportunity to to be around them, but to have deep, meaningful conversations that then when I... Put it out there, it literally changes people's lives by hearing. I mean, you know, you put somebody like Ben Rothenberger, or, you know, I've talked to Steelers, Michael Tomlin, um, any of those guys, uh, and they start talking about their faith, it, you look at that person differently. And, and it actually makes you sometimes. Go figure out well if they think this way. I mean, Peyton Manning's the same way, right? I mean, there's a ton of guys that are the same way, and and it's really interesting that they're incredible athletes, but that's just what they do for a living. It's not who they are, yeah. you know. And so it's it's been an honor uh, and a joy to have those kind of conversations with those guys and to be around. I mean, Tony Dungy is a great example of, you know, on that on, when they won the Super Bowl, everybody was going crazy. And, you know, he kind of lifts up his hands. He's like, all right, everybody just settled down, lock the doors. All the cameras go off. We start every game this way. We finish every game this way. And Everybody got down on their knees and they prayed. Wow. And they thank God for the win, you know. And then he said, now let's celebrate. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, when when you hear stories like that from, from people who, who, who are not ordained, you know, and I put that in quotes, you know we don't walk around in, in with Roman collars on or you I, know, kind of name, I'm just a regular guy, <laughs> just a re- regular people, you know, it, 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 means, I think it, 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 has a more powerful message. I mean, you expect to hear, you know, preaching, um, or witnessing in, in a church or a synagogue or a mosque, you know, but when you hear it outside of those, those four walls, um, you know, I think it, I think it means more, you know, the the Pew center, which is something I pay attention to, you know, has, has been talking for years about the rise of the nuns, you know, which Mm -hmm. means, you know, people who don't identify with any one, you know, particular faith, um, or, or, you know, they're, they're spiritual, but not religious. Um, and, uh, but, 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 but to hear, you know, hear stories from Tony Dungy or, or whoever, um, about how important faith is in their life. Um, you know, could be, could be the best advertisement for, you know, religion and spirituality there is because it's not, it's not necessarily happening. You know, the churches are pre- preaching to the choirs. Um, you know, we're already there. Um, I, the message has to get out, out further. And, you know, it, it's
1: interesting, Tony, actually, um, uh, I used a quote with him, but Barna did a study, um, and it said two thirds of Americans, uh, Believe that when an athlete talks about his faith, he has more influence than when a pastor talks about his faith. And that's a that's a big thing. I mean, I take that on as you know, media and sports are the two biggest influencers of our society today and sports has actually taken taken a hit with covid right i mean what do we do with that and and with their stance on different things and it's not that the stances aren't important it's the way that you're going about it you know and so um yeah it's really interesting to see these play out but i've been a, a, having been in the media industry its industry uh, when i when i first started to kind of explore my faith you know i went to church i hung out with some pastors and and there was this thing that you know, well, the best thing you can do now that you're a Christian or you have a spirituality is become a pastor. Well, that's not going to happen. Well, you should be a missionary. Well, that's probably not. I mean, I can do things, but I work in this industry. And what I realized is that, and I went back to the pastors, and I said this, I said, you know, y- your job is is to teach me because I'm in an industry that you can't even get near. And I said, if my voice is believed that's different. Now I have credibility. People look at me and say, Hey, your work is incredible and excellent. And I don't ever talk about Jesus or God or anything. And yet then all of a sudden somebody will ask why, you know, and I call that the first Peter three fifteen moment, right? First Peter three fifteen says, always be prepared to share the reason that you, that you have your faith and your hope um, with mercy and grace. Well, that's the place you get to talk about it. Right. But it's not, I mean, you know, please don't call me a Christian filmmaker. Oh, my goodness. That's so narrowing. You know, I can tell stories in any venue because that's what I do. Now, I might have a worldview, and don't get me wrong, I, I believe every single piece of media has an agenda. There's something behind it. It's the way that we look at things, right? Well, how do we do that in such a way that it's it, it positively influences our culture and it helps us become great global citizens that's my work
0: yeah i mean be, being sort of dubbed a you know christian filmmaker is kind of like you know being dubbed a, a christian rock band you know like <laughs> i remember listening that's i used the to death to your band it's right <laughs> you know it's it's you know your typecast um yeah. you know the guys from striper i'm sure you know are not going to get on a tour even though they're as heavy as metallica you know they're not right. going to get on tour right. with you know metallica and anthrax anytime soon yeah but, no exactly um, well, let's talk about in, the Invisible Disabilities Association because, um, I mean, obviously that's, that's kind of what brought us together today. Uh, what, what is meant by invisible disabilities?
1: Well, that's a term that was coined by, um, so Sherry and Wayne Cannell founded the Invisible Disabilities Association back in 96. And it came about because Sherry, um, Wayne's wife, was diagnosed with uh, progressive MS, Lyme disease, PTSD, some other things, and she literally couldn't get out of bed. And yet, as a, as a former theater person, an entertainer, you know, um, a model, people would say, well, but you look fine. You look good. What, what's wrong with you? And she had these things that she couldn't figure out. And she said to Wayne, you know, I feel like I have these invisible disabilities. And, and the term just stuck. <clears throat> you know, some people call them hidden disabilities or, you know, whatever. But invisible disabilities is, is what we call them. And it really is that thing of there's a lot of people that have disabilities that are invisible um, and manifest themselves in ways that they still need help or a lot of times they're not believed because again, they look good, you know? Um, and, and so that plays out in, in people's lives. And uh, IDA, the Invisible Disabilities Association, has really just been raising awareness and doing some big things around, hey, let's support these people as much as possible. And uh, I joined them. Um, I've known Wayne for about 15 years. And, you know, we've hung out together on some things. And we helped them with some media around their gala. And then about almost three years ago, I, I, um, they were looking for some help which was real more at kind of the admin side. And I was kind of free and, and said, well, what are you looking for? And uh, before you knew it, we were in a conversation and he said, oh my gosh, well, we can't afford you. And I said, well, that's not the question. Is it? The question is I'm, I'm available. Can I help you? What do you want to be when you grow up? Right. Yeah. And so I came on board and started out and as one of their operation guys, and he made me the executive director very quickly afterwards um, just because I've had experience running businesses and, doing budgets and figuring out strategic planning. And, and because I'm a communicator and a marketer and a storyteller, those tend to be big ways to, to get the message across. And so I really dug in and um, came up with a strategic plan where we had, you know, three major things we were going to do, and we we're going to do them really well. And we've been heading toward that ever since. And it's just, uh, it's been interesting. I've learned so much about, I mean, everybody deals with invisible disabilities, whether it's you or you as a caregiver or, you know, for your kids or whatever. Um, and it affects a whole lot more people than you realize.
0: Yeah. You know, when, when I started reading about it, my mind went like right to stress and anxiety, um, because, you know, and and maybe that's my bias because I know people who, you know, you look at them and say, this guy has got everything going for him, you know, good job, family, respected in the community. Um, but he winds up in you know a psychiatric ward, or uh, he or she attempts to take their life um, yep. and you wonder okay what what's going on here you know and and oftentimes it catches catches us off guard I mean I know a guy who uh, you know my kids went to a a Catholic uh, elementary school every year we'd have a fundraiser um, for that school it was a big golfing event, and the guy who put on that event was very successful um, kind of pillar of the community type. And, you know, one day we get a call that he took his life. Mm. So it's, you know, to me, so that's where I go when I hear that term invisible disabilities. And, and, you know, you think about, I think about stress and, you know, I I know I experience stress and, and I have anxiety, although it's not debilitating, but it is like an invisible killer, isn't it?
1: It is, yeah.
0: Um, For sure. Well, and, we're, and, and the ironic
1: part, Michael, is we're experiencing that in magnified terms, given the COVID and the lockdown. I mean, there's add, add to that fear, you know, um, of not of an insecurity of what's going to happen. How do I survive? When am I going to get this? Am I going to die? Um, all that stuff. Like you said, um, suicides have gone up in this time in the last nine months. Um, drug abuse, domestic violence. Um, alcohol abuse I mean and, and like you said stress anxiety um, and and it's why I mean I know we're, we're we're going to talk about the love ideas summit, but it's why we came up with that idea of how can we help I mean that that's the big part of of what invisible disabilities Association is all about is saying how can we help? Um, sometimes it's raising awareness, sometimes it's creating legislation or grassroots efforts that help people identify, I mean, we have this, we, we have this cool um, ID that you can wear, so that if you got on a bus or something, um, people would recognize this is the invisible disability symbol, right? Um, it also has some information on the back too, that a QR code and some things that if something, let's say you had epilepsy, and you had a seizure, Um, and a first responder, you know, gets to you but can't ask you your name or stuff. There's all this information, emergency contact, things like that. So we've been very intentional about uh, helping people communicate in the place that sometimes you can't communicate. I mean, the law enforcement interaction is a big part of that. But COVID has advanced a lot of this. And, again, our team kind of came together to say, what should we do? What are we seeing? And, and and it really was relationships. Relationships are strained, whether it's work, whether it's husband and wife, whether it's friends, whether it's family, um, because of the lockdown and the uh, and the uncertainty. And again, back to the stress and the fear. And and stress and fear manifest all kinds of things. I mean, migraines, bad back pain. Um, I mean, all kinds of stuff can come out of that. And so we we literally went out. and We gathered ten of the top, uh, you know, the world's top relationship experts, and they're writers and speakers that you would know of. You know, John Gray, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Uh, Gary Chapman, The Five Love Languages. Michael Sorensen, The I Hear You. I mean, uh, you know, Bill and Pam Farrell, who do uh, Men Are Like Waffles, Women Are Like Spaghetti, um, and they're fun. So every so, what we did is we got in touch and said, Hey, would you be willing to donate time? So we could do a five day event. I mean, imagine going to a conference that you would get to see these guys every day speaking and work on your own stuff. Right. With your spouse, with your family, with your good friends, whatever it is. Um, so, yeah, we gathered that and it kind of grew. So our event is uh, November 16th to the 21st. Um, you can sign up for free. Love uh, loveideas.org. org. Is, is where the page is, or you can go to invisibil- invisibledisabilities.org and all the information is there as well. But so we've got two speakers a day and then we've added a bunch of other content um, that we call bonus content and some round tables. Uh, how does it affect you? You know, interestingly enough, our family situations have been drawn closer, which is good, but maybe difficult, right? <laughs> um, and our business relationships have been pushed apart where we meet like this. Um, It used to be you and I would go stay and we'd be in the same room for eight hours doing work, whatever. So, you know, I reached out to Ken Blanchard and John Rulin and, and Greg Reed, Phoenix Jackson, a couple other people say, Hey, how do we get through this business thing relationally? And we did it with some writers. We did it with grandparents. We did it with uh, blended families. We talk with some folks. Uh, we actually talk about suicide prevention. You know, what's going on? How do we get over that? So, yeah, we have this whole host of information, but it really is focused on how do we get better at our relationships? Um, and, yeah, so it's been fun pulling it together. It's all video on demand, too, which means that you can tune in. Once you sign up, you'll get a password. And the password will take you somewhere. And then every day we add more content. So we start with, um, again, the Monday slate and all the bonus content. And then we'll add Tuesday and you can still go back to Monday. And same thing. And then the final day we're we're trying to do what we're calling the um, world's largest online date night. So, after this relational thing that you go through that you're working on stuff, hopefully Saturday is a time of hey, we've got some comedians, we've got some music, we've got an illusionist, and trying to pin down a couple of movies that you can just tune in and watch if you want. You know,
0: yeah, I, Should be I, fun. I noticed, I mean, I looked at all the speakers and it, it is impressive. And I was fortunate enough to interview, you know, both Gay Hendricks and Warren Farrell in, in the past. Um, but I love the idea of date night, you know, because that's one thing that I am just, craving with my wife you know we used to make a point of going out every week you know up into the point where you know our kids were growing up we'd have a sitter and we made it you know one night a week was always date night and you know COVID hits and there's no date night you know there's date night at home you know so we'll we'll do that we'll dress up we'll make dinner we'll sit together and we'll just hang out which is great I, I really do treasure those moments but it's it's not like going out and doing the people watching we would always do and, and the same of, at
1: all, man. Right? That well, and we don't realize one of the big things that has affected us, frankly, is straight up the personal engagement interactions to shake hands, to hug, to be around people. In that thing has greatly affected us. I mean, um, you know, I teach, my wife teaches, um, and and we're we're worried, we're concerned that there's this block of time in this generation that is going to have a huge detriment on, on the learning capacity for, for our kids. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, um, but, but, you know, I, you know, I, I just want to go back to something you said before, which is, you know, I, th- I think there's two things that are, that could be happening here. You know, one is, you know, families are spending more time together and they're becoming closer than ever. And on the other side, it's families are spending more time together and um, they're reaching a boiling point you know right. it's it's and it's it's tough and I see it happening in my in my own house like it gets to a point where you know enough is enough and we need we need some space and you know the, the problem is there's not many uh, you know options of, of where to go to get here I mean I've taken more walks in the past you know eight months than I have in my entire life I want to say but
1: yeah um, more people got dogs during this time that's right right yeah so, and I will say dogs are a great thing talk about uh nonstop unconditional love, right? Um that's the great thing about our dogs is everybody can be having a bad day, but you walk in, that dog's gonna love you no matter what.
0: That's right. Well and you're right.
1: So uh finding space and it's interesting, I mean, the tough thing about, you know, whether you're dealing with disabilities, whether you're dealing with the stress of what's going on of tight quarters, um, there is an uh an affluency gap. You know, an equity gap in that, because while some of us maybe we're doing well and everybody has their own room they can go to, that's not the way it is for everybody. And so you're right that the pressure, the stress of what we're going through has has certainly uh, ratcheted up um, a, a lot of tension in the family situation, which is tough. And we need to figure out a way to deal with it.
0: All right. So I know we've got the Love Ideas Summit coming up, Exploring the Heart of Relationships, November 16th to the 21st. Uh, and you can find more at loveideas.org. Anything else you want to uh, to talk or, or just just kind of plug before you uh, end up here, Jess?
1: Yeah, uh, well, love um, that you've in- invited me to talk about stuff. Had a blast, you know, kind of going through my history. But um, yeah, being, I mean, uh, the Invisible Disabilities Association, you know, obviously I, I want to plug for them because... Uh, we're doing some amazing stuff, you know, just when you don't see somebody, I mean, uh, just because somebody doesn't have an assistive device like a wheelchair or mobility cane or a hearing aid that you can see doesn't mean they don't need help. So believing people in the midst of that is a key to, uh, helping people through that stuff and, you know, becoming a caregiver and somebody that can help out, especially in this time of COVID, you know, where, Somebody, it might be your neighbor, and maybe you just need to call and say, hey, I'm going to the grocery store. Can I get you anything? You know what I mean? So, yeah, be available, be positive, and uh, we'll make it through this uh, together. We're very resilient people.
0: I will say you brought together a who's who of speakers uh, for the Love Idea Summit. You're not charging anybody anything to attend this, although I'm sure you would appreciate some donations and in, uh, in return for uh, in return for this content. Am I wrong in believing that, Jess?
1: Of course not. I mean, there is a place that you can give. There's also sponsorships at the corporate level. Um, you know, obviously we expect a ton of people to be coming through to this because it is free. And you're right, the slate of people is really incredible. Um, so yes, if you have the ability to donate, that would be wonderful. We'll, we'll certainly take it and we'll put it toward the work that we're doing with uh, Invisible Disabilities. Um, And if you want a sponsor, um, just get in touch with us and we'd be glad to put your name all over this thing.
0: All right. Very good. Well, Jess, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it.
1: It's awesome hanging out with you, Michael. Thanks so much.
0: Oh my goodness. What a conversation with uh, Jess Stainbrook from the uh, Invisible Disabilities Association. That story about him being detained and interviewed by the KGB. I don't know about you, but what, when he was talking about it it, it, it sent like a chill down my spine. And just just a quick reflection on it, you know, it's um, it, it's one of these things where, um, you know, not that I want to get overly religious or spiritual here, but it's one of those moments uh, where, you know, w- w- what what does God need to do to get your attention? You know, in in his case, it was to um to be interviewed and detained by the KGB because they thought he could be CIA. I mean, you could write a movie about that. I'm sure somebody has. Um, maybe they did, I don't know. Anyway, if you want to learn more about Jess and if you want to learn more about the Invisible Disabilities Association, I encourage you to go to invisibledisabilities.org. And uh, there you could find more information about the Love Idea Summit happening between November 16th and 21st, 2020, um, uh, exploring the heart of relationships. I'm registered to go. Registration is free. They do encourage you to give a, a small donation. And just looking at the speaker list, it really is a who's who of uh, of uh, relationships. So, um, you know, please consider uh, registering. Consider making a donation. They would really appreciate it. Uh, that's InvisibleDisabilities.org. And, of course... Hey, i got to plug myself. Of course, if you want to learn more about me and my books, uh, please visit MikeCarlin.com. That's C-A-R-L-O-N. The O always throws people off. Everyone wants to put an I in there, like George Carlin. I wish I were George Carlin sometimes, although maybe not because he's dead. Um, MikeCarlin.com, you can learn more about my books. Um, You can go to uncorkingastory.com, to... uh, Obviously, not only listen to this podcast episode, which you're already listening to if you're hearing my voice now, but you can go and listen to all of the past guests uh, that I've interviewed, uh, including uh, Dr. Warren Farrell, who was on this program uh, a while back. He's going to be speaking at the Love Idea Summit, as well as Gay Hendricks, who is another speaker at the Love Idea Summit. So I hope you do that. And, um, you know, for all the hardworking people here at Uncorking a Story, this is Mike Carlin saying, thank you for listening.